And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Stop it! Disenfranchised by the modern comics industry, producer Paul Spitaro, Dr. Bill Robinson, and Scott H. Gardner now ply the time stream in a never-ending quest to rediscover and reconnect with that unique brand of fun and excitement that can only truly be found in good old-fashioned, randomly selected comic book back issues. Journey with them now. Back. Back. To the bins. I got nowhere else to go. I got nowhere else to go. I got nothing else. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Back to the Bins. I'm Paul Spataro, and this time I am joined in a much overdue guest show by Mr. Chris Eberly. Hello. And Mr. Adam Murdo. Nice to be uh, back. Of comic Hell yeah. geek speak fame. We are also scheduled to be joined by Ian Levenstein, but we are he is uh, unavoidably detained, and we're going to try and persevere and hope he gets to us before we're done. But we can't promise if he can't get here tonight, then I will have him on another night, and uh, I don't think that'll be an issue. But it's always great to get my guy, my friends from CGS on. I look forward to it when we could do it. I, I like to say I like to look forward to doing it a couple of times a year, but it usually happens we do it every couple of years, <laughs> just by chance. That's the I, way I, th- I, th- I thought it was annual. It's not annual. I thought it was annual. No? I think we shoot for – I think we, we – well, when we talk about it, we say, oh, every six months would work. But I think the reality is we end up shooting for annual, and then there ends up being a couple of month lag before we get to do it. <laughs> yeah, so, every you know, time is- every, Everybody's got busy, busy schedules, and I totally get it, and I'm always glad when you guys make time to talk to me. Uh, so just uh, before we get into our books, how you guys doing? Murdy can go first. Okay. Uh, no, doing fine, Paul. Uh, <laughs> just uh, beginning to shift from uh, Pennsylvania to New Jersey modes here. My family uh, lives in two different states, different it's a, a family business thing, and uh, so it's, we're going to be hearing quite a bit about the Garden State in this episode. I get the feeling <laughs> that works for me. And uh, Chris is, looks like he's just finally winding down after another long school year is coming to a conclusion. Yep, I'm uh, I'm like Murd. I, I'm well, I'm a full time New Jersey resident and uh, been persevering through this very trying year, a trying year for everybody in different ways. And uh, shows like this and just reading comics in general are, as always, a tonic for the spirit. So Absolutely. Totally Paul, agree thanks for having you. us on. In, in, in what's been a very trying year. Yeah. You know, as, as has been my want through my entire life, comics have provided me a shelter and, a, and an escape <laughs> from reality uh, <laughs> that I don't know, especially when a couple of these books were written, I don't know that the writers knew that they'd have, you know, people of our age and ilk still finding solace in these books, but boy, they really do. Here, here. So uh, my normal way of doing things is when I have guests on, I let you guys choose what order we're going to do our books in. So by all means, I'm willing to go first, second, or third, or if Ian gets on, even fourth. Uh, but, you know, I'll let you guys just determine the order you prefer to go. Paul, I think, is the host that you should go first. <laughs> that is okay with me, and uh, 
I chose, and as I let you guys know, I chose what is the earliest issue of the Amazing Spider-Man run that I have in my personal collection. And I have to, I have a certain amount of fondness for this book because it is a byproduct of the fact that I do this show, that I have this book. A listener contacted me and said, I have uh, copies of Spider-Man number 11 and 12 that are pretty much, you know, beaten to hell. But I really don't have any use for them. If you give me your address, I'll mail them over to you. Ah, and I sent them over, and, and nice. they are beaten to hell, but I'm still very, very proud to own them and very happy to own them. So I took Spider-Man number 11, which is the first one, and again, the earliest in my collection, thanks to, uh, thanks to the generosity of others. It has a cover date of April of 1964, and the cover is drawn by Steve Ditko. It shows Spider-Man in the hold of a ship, I assume, because we can see all the rivets in the walls and floor around him. And he's kind of cornered by Dr. Octopus, who's coming at him. Uh, and there's a lot of actual verbiage on the cover. It says, featuring the long-awaited return of Dr. Octopus. Considering this is issue 11, I don't know how long-awaited long that was. That's classic Stanley hyperbole right there. <laughs> exactly. And it says, turning point. See what happens when Sp Spider-Man decides to reveal his secret identity to someone else. Will he really do it? i got to actually open up my other copy here because it's too small on my screen. There we go. Will... <laughs> Will he really do it? Will this be the turning point in his amazing career? Or, but why not turn these pages and learn for yourself in this classic tale told in the marvelous Marvel manner? Another spectacular smash hit from the House of Ideas. So right off the bat, uh, just me and my thoughts on the cover. Uh, it, it's, you know, it's dynamic in that Steve Ditko dynamism way, which is very different from other people's dynamic covers. You know, you compare it to somebody, you know, when you think of the definition of dynamic and you think of like Neil Adams or somebody like that, it's extremely different from that. But just the same, it's got a certain charm to it that, that I love. Uh, and it, it's, you know, Ock looks, to me, looks very menacing. And yet, you know, despite the, the strange nature of his being, he looks kind of believable to me. Uh, just moving on to the synopsis, we open with a splash page showing Spider-Man being accosted by Betty Brandt, who's declaring her hatred for him, with the shadow of Doc Ock looming over them. How did we get to this point? Well, let's see. As was the norm of the day, Peter is sitting and moping about his love life with Betty Brandt when he hears a radio report that Dr. Octopus is about to be released from prison. He recounts his initial encounter with the eight-armed fiend and heads to the prison to explain to the warden why he should not be released. The warden tells Spider-Man that Octopus has served his time and tells him to get the hell out of here before he has him arrested. <laughs> Knowing that Octopus will probably go back to a life of crime, Peter develops his now-famous Spider-Tracer to allow him to track Octopus wherever he goes. When he tags the car coming to pick up Octopus from prison, he's shocked to find Betty Brandt driving. He also finds that she dropped a map to Philadelphia from the car when she picked up Octopus. Remember, this is a pre-GPS era, and Rand McNally was a viable business at that time. But again, this, this, this belies our New Jersey roots in this episode and takes us into Philadelphia. Anyway, we meet Betty's brother, Bennett, who is, now, who is both the lawyer for crime boss Blackie Gaxton and one of his best customers, apparently amassing a large gambling debt. In order, to steer, in order to clear the debt, Bennett has agreed to enlist Dr. Octopus to free him from prison. 
For reasons that escape me, this somehow requires Betty to pick up Ock from jail and bring him to Bennett's apartment, where the criminal is dismissive and abusive. Peter decides that he needs to travel from New York City to the city of brotherly love for a weekend with his excuse me, for the weekend, and his routinely overprotective aunt agrees without even inquiring as to his <laughs> method of travel, where he's staying, or who he's traveling with. He tracks down Betty, tells her how he feels about her, and decides that he needs to tell her about his dual identity. Meanwhile, Dr. Octopus frees Gaxton for the promised return of $100,000, which, using an inflation calculator, would work out to $861,464.52 in today's dollars. <laughs> They take Betty and Bennett as hostages as they escape by boat. Spider-Man arrives but clumsily sprains his own ankle before even encountering any bad guys. Despite this, he takes out the thugs while Doc Ock is otherwise interfered with. But, oops, Bennett is shot by a bullet fired by Blackie that was meant for his sister Betty. And, of course, she blames Spider-Man for her brother's apparent death. Spider-Man re-incapacitates re the thugs and battles Dr. Octopus around the ship, emptying a fire extinguisher in his face so that he can make sure Betty is okay. At this point, everyone wants to use her as a hostage, but she conveniently faints, and Ock transfers to a smaller boat so that Spider-Man can have less maneuverability if he follows. As they battle, the small craft runs into a pier and throws the two of them into the water where Ock escapes. The police arrive and arrest Blackie and his gang. Later, Betty tells Peter that she hopes to never see Spider-Man again because she couldn't bear being reminded of her brother's death which throws a wrench into his plan of revealing his secret identity to her. He walks off sadly, wishing that the Lonely Man theme had been written to accompany him. And that's my book for today. And Good synopsis, Paul. Good synopsis. Thank you. It's, it's one, you know, lately it's become a rare thing for me to actually do a pre-written synopsis. Usually I do it off the, off the cuff, cuff or I steal it from the Marvel Wikipedia. But uh, today I just felt the desire to sit and actually write something out. Uh, I got a kick out of this book as I was reading it, and a lot of it is based on nostalgia from when I was a kid reading these books and just, you know, the Stanley style of writing. Uh, there is one point I noticed, I don't know if you, how closely you guys looked at this, but there was one point where I noticed where he's fighting and he reaches down to his ankle, which clearly Ditko meant to show that he's hobbled from spraining his ankle and he wanted Stan to write some sort of dialogue to that effect. And Stan just totally dis, you know, discarded that and went on to some other point. Uh, There's the infamous uh, lack of communication between Stan Lee and Steve Ditko once again. <laughs> yes, I'm going to really quickly look and see if I could find what page it is so I can refer you to it. Uh, I should have made it in my put it in my notes. There, uh, it's on page 16 of the story in the bottom right-hand panel, if you have uh, access to it in front of you. Mm -hmm. I'm taking, I'm looking for it as we speak. My, 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 I'm, I have a, an old Marvel masterwork, so I think my page numbers are different. Mm -hmm. uh, well, it, it takes place during the, the battle on the uh, ship. Uh, let's see if I can direct you to it. It's the page before the fire extinguisher. Okay. And the bottom right-hand panel. Adam, had you read this one uh, yep, at any I, point I see, previously? I see that. Yep. <laughs> uh, I had not and still have not read any of the selections for today's episode other than my own, Paul. I'm sorry. It's pretty much the same situation it was last time. I didn't get shot on back to the bins. I just 
I don't have very many collections of early Silver Age Marvel, and the few I have I got from Chris, either as presents or as uh, raffle gifts. And uh, I was hoping I could at least tell you that I had read this story like 30 years ago when um, my friend Matt and I were young teenagers, and uh, he let me borrow one of his uh, – well, the one – amazing Spider-Man Marvel Masterworks edition that he had. But unfortunately, I've, a quick Google search just uh, tells me that uh, that volume contained only Amazing Fantasy number 15 and the first 10 issues of uh, Amazing Spider-Man. So, yep, I actually have not even read this episode, this issue 30 years ago. So, Okay. This one, I have this in multiple formats now, as I explained, including the uh, original. But I also have the Masterworks, and I have uh, the uh, DVD of all the Spider-Man books, and just... I probably have this in five different formats by the time I'm done. <laughs> That's like Shane with his Justice League. Crap on a cracker, as he would say. <laughs> uh, Paul, I, I really am glad you chose this because, I mean, I'm, obviously I'm a lifelong Spider-Man fan. I've read all these stories, but I haven't read I haven't read this issue in many, many years. So it was great to revisit it. I mean, I, I kind of knew what happened, but I didn't remember really much, much of the details. So... For me, what was thrilling was all the classic elements that make the Lee Ditko run so great are here. Everything from, you know, Peter, nothing goes right. He wants to reveal his identity that he can't. Of course, he injures himself inadvertently, and that, that, that handicaps him throughout the fight. The police, of course, once again, mistake him for being potentially being a criminal. Um, and you also see a lot of the hallmarks of what made Spider-Man such a compelling character in the 60s compared to other superheroes. Him thinking about how he's going to do his fight in thought balloons, which nobody else really did. Um, yeah, that was that was definitely a Stanley yeah, innovation. Yeah, and, and you know, obviously the quips, the humor. Uh, and you made a great point, Paul, also that – and this is very Ditko. When you look at Dr. Octopus, what makes him all the more creepy is that he looks like a real schlub who you could actually meet. And <laughs> – and that's what makes him all the more creepy and sinister because, you know, I probably met this guy at some point. I mean, I ran a comic book store. I definitely met a guy like this on more than one occasion. Um, and <laughs> that's 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 our our uh, everlasting shame, that stereotype that we have to live with. <laughs> but but as Chris um, likes to say, it exists for a reason. Yes, there's always a kernel of truth. And uh, uh, it just, it, this, the issue reminded me of what Ditko did so well was to draw – just sort of the ugliness of, of quote, like of like normal people. And I mean, granted, he wasn't I don't think he, he never drew the most compelling women, which is one of the reasons why John Romita Sr. was I think was so successful when like he revamped Gwen Stacy and introduced Mary Jane. But um, when it came to dra drawing like gangsters, passersby, villains, I mean, Ditko sets the tone for the whole Spider-Man universe. It's funny because we, yeah. we've mentioned in the past about how Kirby could draw real good, ugly people. And Ditko has that same skill, but in a very, very different way. Yes, the, the absolutely. Two, you know, the, you, you'd never mistake one for the other. Uh, they, they, they really were like two ends, different ends of the quality spectrum, you know, both being of high quality, but so different in style and, and such innovators in, at that time uh, that it's just, you know, phenomenal to see what was going on. I think his, his pacing Ditko in this book and his uh, oh, it's superb. Just, just his his yeah. drawing of like movement and battles and everything is really just so well done. No, I mean Ditko. We think about, I mean, obviously we we think of Spider-Man today as this multimedia phenomenon, but when you think about how he was introduced, I mean, it's just it's just serendipity. This is the perfect artist to establish the tone and look of this type of character. Um, 
And and when you contrast, like I I can't help but contrast it to like some of the DC titles of the time, which I also love, but no one's ugly in those DC comics. Like you know, everyone kind of looks like almost idealized. And, and in Ditko's world, the shadows, the the sordid you know slums of, of the cityscape, and just the way people walk and move and and, and gesture, it's it's so real in so many ways. I mean, granted, there's like there's almost like this exaggerated sometimes pulpy norish element to it which i also love but um i mean right in this one issue everything to know about why spider-man was great it's all here now i i I totally agree with you about the shadows and everything and and i think it's it's a point i've made several times about ditko when you compare early in his career and you look at his spider-man and his doctor strange and then you look at you know towards the end of his career and i always have kind of come to the conclusion and you know, let me know if you do or don't agree with this, but I've always come to the conclusion that later in his career, people were intimidated by him and didn't really understand what made his work great when he was, you know, a young, younger innovator like this. So when they would take his pencil drawings and ink them, they would oversimplify them and they would lose that shadow and they would lose a lot of that noir feeling. And it would almost look more, for lack of a better word, cartoonish than what it did in his early career when he was an innovator. Uh, and, and when I see later Ditko work, it's always disappointing to me because of that. I would really love to see some of those books taken by, you know, a real quality inker who has the confidence to, you know, really do it upright, but not necessarily like, I, I don't necessarily want like a Klaus Jansen who's going to impose his own style on it, but somebody who's going to try and recreate the style that Ditko had early in his career. I think that's a very valid point, and and to contrast it, I, I believe these early stories he inked himself, correct? Yes, I think. Yeah, I'm pretty so sure. you, you definitely see, and I know what you say. I know what you mean about some of the later work. I definitely think the contrast is is, is quite evident. Um, and like like the, like the last panel where they have like the the the, the uh, sort of ethereal vision of Spider-Man head down, walking ahead of Peter, like again showing the burden Peter has to carry as Spider-Man. I mean that, that's such a classic Ditko image. Um, and when you think about – like when you go back to the – because they don't really do this much in comics now, of course, but the title page is gives you a sense of what the story is going to be about uh, going forward. But just look at that page, like the, the shadow of Dr. Octopus and like you know the question mark and Spider-Man's arms you know, outstretched in, in dismay, and it's just – oh, it's great. But I also love though, again, because again, it's that, it's that team that even though you – know, Obviously, their partnership didn't end well, but Lee's dialoguing and his captions and, of course, his salesmanship, which like when you read the cover copy, that's classic Stan Lee Carnival Barker, right? Getting people to buy the book. And then look at that title page, like that lower bottom yellow arrow. See Diabolical Dr. Octopus. See The Secret of Betty Brandt. See Spider-Man's Greatest Victory and His Most Bitter Disappointment. I mean – if I'm if I'm like a young kid, I'm putting down my twelve cents, man, because I want to see what's going to happen here. That, and that's that's the inner cover after you've already put down yeah. your twelve cents. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> you didn't have enough room to put that on the front cover because you already had so much hyperbole there. <laughs> but it, it 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 just it, again the the core greatness of the Marvel concept is here. Like when you when you go to the first page, and how many superhero books start with, with a superhero sitting just alone in his room, no mask on? Just thinking. And oh, yeah. we no, that was that take, was a total, yeah. total change. We from take the DC that for granted now, but 
that wasn't being – again, these are the reasons why Marvel was so seen as such an innovator when it first appeared like this because the characters didn't do this type of stuff. They didn't have like these moments of reflection or, or inner agony or, or you know insecurity, and, and, and you know it's all there. So, and, th- and that's where I get – I don't want to say offended because that would be the wrong word, but bothered by the people who want to now discredit Stan Lee. And say, you know, Jack Kirby and and Steve Ditko and Don Heck, they were the guys, you know, and and I'm trying to think of who else was there at that time. Uh, This is, I guess, pre-Gene Colan, who we're going to get to shortly. Uh, But, you know, they want to totally give them all the credit to make up for the fact that Stan had too much credit to begin with. And... The real, the reality of it is, I think it truly was a marriage between these guys. And yes, Stan and Stan and Steve had an an angry marriage, but they had a marriage just the same. And I think you know it was Stan's innovation and Stan's dialogue that really, you know, brought it all home. And and I always think that's brought home by by what we see when Jack Kirby took the reins totally when he went over to DC and he was dialoguing and and scripting his own stories. He, he had some marvelous ideas, and I still love those books, don't get me oh, wrong, yeah. Yeah. but they don't have the same accessibility that they did with Stan no. writing them. And I, I concur wholeheartedly. We've talked about this many times on our own show over the years that – and, and Murd and I have both – I always go back to Murd's wonderful statement that he made. Two-thirds Kirby, one-third Lee, but that one-third is really important. And uh, Murd, again, I salute you for that very astute <laughs> observation, but – um, I agree 100 percent, Paul. I mean all the invaluable contributions these pencers made, and, and, and again, they didn't get the credit they deserved until more recently. Um, but Lee's contribution is, is – I mean he was setting the tone. He was creating the, the interconnected universe. He, he was getting people to buy these books through his, his, his uh, narration and, and his – the playful approach and, 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 and especially with Spider-Man really creating a personality for Peter – and Spidey through that dialogue and those all important thought balloons, which I think are sorely missed in comics today. I agree. Totally. Um, especially people try to make up for it with the uh, narration boxes, but it doesn't yeah. doesn't have the same. Spider-Man, effect. Spider-Man's thought balloons are one of some of the most compelling aspects of that character's history as you read through. So, um, Paul, I salute you. This is a great selection. And just just as a, I don't want to you know focus too much on the Lee uh, Kirby Ditko you know. Ah, go ahead. It's fine. Issues. But just, you know, I think the reality of it is Stan got the, the lion's share of the credit because Stan was that carnival barker. And from oh, everything I can tell, Ditko was pretty much introverted when it came to dealing with the public. And Kirby was too busy just sitting there cranking out penciled pages day after day to be a, uh, a promoter of his own work. Uh, well, I, I, Ditko, I only – Go ahead. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I, I had not rem- – actually remembered this until my cousin reminded me but back in the 1970s you know we went to one of the manhattan hotel shows uh and we met jack kirby there and i hadn't i had no recollection of this until my cousin told me that uh and he and he he was even saying says the reason you don't remember it is because he was so quiet he he was respectful he thanked us for uh you know for coming over to and all but he didn't really have a lot to say to promote himself because that just wasn't his style no, the work the work he did was what was promoting him, um, and, uh, and you know, unfortunately, that wasn't fully recognized and given its due until really more after when he was older when he died. And of course, as we all know, recently his family finally got you know the financial compensation that they were long due um, and the recognition. But I, I agree with you. I mean, Lee 
part of Lee's job was to promote, edit and promote these books. And he was really good at it. And, and, you know, certainly there were plenty of opportunities where he took probably more credit than he certainly should have. But um, that doesn't, I don't think that, that diminishes what he did here. And I, I agree with you. Like, like part of it is personnel. Like St- Steve Ditko famously went to one convention in the 60s and then never went to a convention ever again, ever. So, you know, very much a, a, an introverted person who, I mean, lived pretty much in isolation. I mean, um, and of course, his whole objectivist political ideology, which is a whole nother discussion. But um, it, it's like you said, it, very different personalities. And for a brief period of time, they were they just found a way to, to, to make it work. And we're, we all benefit from that. Absolutely. So. And any thoughts to add on this one, Adam? Just not necessarily on the book, but just the whole conversation. <laughs> nope. I think you gentlemen have uh, said it well. Besides, Chris has already uh, represented me. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, 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 and with a, an excellent uh, quote and thought, I agree with it totally. Uh, all right. So now, as as is our want on Back to the Bins, we rate these books. Yep. Uh, cover, art, story, and then overall. So I'm, I'm going to go first with my book. I think it's a very compelling cover i really like the the line work on it i think it is overly verbose but i can deal with that (laughs) so i'm going to say a low a lower a maybe like an a minus uh the interior art if if i have a criticism of the excuse me if i have a criticism of the interior art it's as the book goes on it looks to me like ditko might have started to rush a little bit and started to not put as much background detail as he went on further. Uh, but that would be the only criticism I have of it. I think the pacing is, is phenomenal. I think the action scenes are incredibly well choreographed. And I think the emotion is showing on the faces of the characters that you real you literally could page through this book without reading a word of dialogue and still understand exactly what happened in the story. So, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna say an A minus on the artwork in the interior artwork as well, uh, and you know I think I think Stan's dialogue just you know enhances it that much more you know one one third better because of that dialogue as, as, <laughs> as, a, uh, as a as a wise man once said. Uh, so I'm, I'm gonna say you know overall just really I'm gonna just say A minus is all around on this thing, and and go right through it's 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 not quite like an all time classic to get an A plus. But it is, you know, there, I, I can really not fault it at all. Uh, see, for me, when we talk about Silver Age and like early Bronze Age Spider-Man, I'm hopeless. Every book's an A. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I mean, the, the, this the, the lead did go really Spider-Man through right through the death of Gwen and the Goblin well, the death of the goblin in quotes, but um, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't find much fault with, with with any of those issues, and certainly certainly not any from this period. As so. as I've mentioned many times on the show, my first book as a collector that some somehow some switch got clicked in my brain, and all of a sudden I decided I have to get as many of these as I possibly can, and it became a lifelong obsession. Was Spider Man number one thirty one, which is uh, oh! with this ring, I the web. So it got incredibly silly as soon as I walked on board. Uh, uh-huh. But I have a tough time criticizing any of those books, too, because that's my that's my era. That's when oh, I walked in on the show. We've talked many times about especially my love of the lunacy of the Spider-Mobile. 
and <laughs> that that whole that whole period. So I'm right there with you, my friend. Yeah, it's so yeah. It's, it's I have a tough time criticizing anything until I don't know ever. Uh, <laughs> it's just uh, you know, Spider-Man is is my. You know, as, as is with the case with you, Chris, Spider-Man is my character. He, he is my sweet spot in comics. So uh, the only reason I came A- minus instead of A is because I'm trying to be objective. <laughs> ah, fudge it, Paul. It's your hill. It's your beans. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that'll, that'll do it for our first book. And uh, which one of you gents would like to go next? I volunteer, Paul. Go for it, Adam. All right. I, hold on. I'm gonna I'm gonna punch the cover image of your book onto my screen because that's all I have to go on. I am ready. <laughs> all right. So we're gonna have a nice little Marvel sandwich here, um, and in between <laughs> the two slices of Marvel, we're going to have a tangy, savory filling composed of the Hoon. That's right. I said the Hoon. H O O N. This is. Yes, my selection here is it's going to be our indie selection for this episode of Back to the Bins. Uh, it's uh, extremely obscure, for which I apologize. I'm kind of dwelling in a bizarre mirror dimension here where uh, I'm unable to see uh, my, my fellow co-hosts' uh, picks for this episode, and they can't see mine. Um, yeah, they were they tried, bless them. I mean, Paul was saying that he uh, went on mycomicshop.com, and uh, he found a copy, but it would have gotten here too late to, to be read for this episode. So... Perfectly all right. Um, a little, but, little uh, disappointing that mycomicshop.com was the only place where I could really find any reference. That's I was trying I to it. see yep. if there was something where they described the contents of the issue or when I did an image search to see if there were maybe some pages so that I could sample the artwork a little but bit. But, Paul, in a way, that's for the best because I can assure you no one will do a better description than Murd. So I, I, have, I have said in the past, and I will continue to believe until somebody proves me otherwise, that I do not know anyone who has a better vocabulary, vocabulary – than our friend Adam Murdo. So, I, by gentlemen, all means, go I with can, it. can only aspire to live up to your praise. We'll just see if I've got it in me today. Okay, so the Hoon um, is a very obscure mid '90s uh, small press title. Uh, it was the the first issue, the Hoon number one, which is what I'm holding here, uh, was published in 1995. Um, it was uh, written and drawn by one Rob with two B's, Bihun, B-I-H-U-N. And I'm pretty sure that the name The Hoon is derived from uh, the uh, surname of the author. Um, it was published under his uh, Eeny Weeny Comics uh, vanity imprint. Uh, the, the, the corner logo has a picture of a little dachshund on it. Um, and uh, The Hoon was actually the, uh, the, the Hoon is the name of the title, the main character, um, uh, who's he was the breakout character from an even more obscure uh, previous title published by Eeny Weeny called Funny Time Features. Um, which, which Rob Behoon also uh, wrote and drew. And uh, actually, uh, Billy Tucci's She did a guest shot in one issue oh. of Funny Time Features. So I guess that's, that's uh, that, that series claim to fame. And uh, The Hoon uh, spun off from there. Um, so, yes, the front cover of the issue uh, is, uh, is kind of a corker, actually. That's what drew me to this comic in the first place, because uh, when I – in the early 90s – well, I guess it must have been the mid-90s um, – in an issue of uh, Wizard – the the wow. guide to comics. Uh, they actually gave this a little bit of a, a promotional blurb. I'm guessing they spotlighted it uh, in their uh, their price guide section, and there was an image of this cover right there. Uh, it's uh, it shows the Hoon himself, and uh, to describe the Hoon, um, you gentlemen are familiar with the character Six Pack from uh, Ennis and McRae's Hitman of series oh. from DC. I don't think I am actually. Uh, well, he's 
<laughs> an overweight, disheveled, unshaven gentleman, uh, always drunk, uh, because that's the source of his superpowers. He wore a tiny derby hat on the top of his head and an ill-fitting superhero costume stretched out over an enormous beer gut. Great stuff. Um, the, the Hoon is kind of like a kinder, gentler, on-the-wagon version of Sixpack, at least in appearance. Yes, he shows no signs of alcohol abuse, but uh, he is um, borderline obese, hirsute, uh, he's got a permanent 5 o'clock shadow, he's 5'8", 300 pounds of super-powered flab poured into uh, uh, poorly fitting and uh, not recently washed wrestler's costume. And uh, the, the cover of this issue, the first of his series, uh, shows him sitting thing in costume, because he never takes it off, uh, on a log in front of a crackling fire, a campfire outside. Uh, he's roasting a marshmallow, and he's looking around him saying, hey, where you got going? I haven't gotten to the scary part yet. So apparently he's been telling a ghost story, and then looming up behind him is a large, shaggy figure, its face concealed by shadow, with horns coming out of its head and giant clawed hairy paws reaching out for him. It's casting its silhouette on the, the, the logo, the, the, the title logo, the Hoon, which... <laughs> I'm guessing you guys can't see it very well uh, through the camera here, but it, the two O's in the word hoon looks like what can only be described as a, a double titty twister gone terribly wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I guess alternatively, like two white balloons that have been tied together into kind of a balloon origami version of like an infinity symbol. It's it's a little disturbing if you think about it too hard. But anyway, that that's the cover. Quite eye-catching. It promises some... Uh, of funny slash spooky goings on uh, in the pages within. Um, it op- the story opens with a little two-page establishing scene telling us that uh, the story is set in the uh, storied Pine Barrens region of southern oh. New Jersey, which is an area that has a certain fascination for me because, uh, um, I mentioned towards the top of this episode, my family uh, owns some property in a town called Stone Harbor, which is a little resort community in, uh, on the Jersey Shore near Cape May. And uh, we have always taken... Uh, a backwoods route to get down there. You know, instead of taking the more obvious uh, AC Expressway to the Garden State Parkway, which is what most people from my part of Pennsylvania do to get to southern New Jersey, uh, we drive through the, the back roads, and we actually do pass through a, a narrow little neck of the Pine Barrens on our way down to Stone Harbor. So um, I know a thing or two about the Pine Barrens, what it looks like, what the geography and culture are like. Um, and I can say from reading this issue that... Uh, well, I, I, kudos to Rob Behoon for at least setting the story there, but he didn't do quite as much research as maybe he should have. But anyway, the, the first couple of pages in the story uh, set the tone. It's nighttime. There's a farmer. Who, uh, his name is Bill Pruitt. There it is. I found it. Uh, he's heading out to the barn to feed his horses uh, when suddenly he and his horse are attacked by a strange, monstrous uh, figure only seen in shadow. And we cut from there directly to the title splash, Tales of the Hoon, A Devil in Jersey. Huh. And uh, the first sight we have of our title character is the Hoon sitting there in all of his moon-faced, unshaven glory. He's got a hobo's bindle over his shoulder with one hand, and he's sticking out a thumb to hitchhike with the other. And we're seeing him through the from the point of view of the driver of a pickup truck who is slowing down in the midst of the Pine Barrens to pick him up and give him a short ride. And then we get another page or two of the Hoon uh, uh, expositing to us uh, about his current situation. He's, he's talking to the driver, and we see all of this through the driver's point of view. We never actually see who or what has picked the Hoon up in this pickup truck. It could be a ghost. It could be an alien. It could be a serial killer. We just don't know, uh, which, you know, intentionally or unintentionally, it's kind of an eerie effect, which is a, a, a good further send, uh, tone setter for some 
um, genuine spookiness to follow. Uh, but the Hoon is explaining to this unseen driver that he used to live in a place called Supertown, uh, which is apparently a, you know, your standard superhero comics metropolis where lots of superheroes hang out you know, in such numbers that apparently the city fathers just threw up their hands, waved the white flag, and named the city after them. And he explains that he was one of the uh, biggest heroes there, but then, in Funny Time Features number 3, 4, and 5, he was accused of a crime that uh, he doesn't remember committing and uh, felt he needed to skip town. And so, for some reason, he randomly decided to make his way to the uh, Pine Barrens of New Jersey to find this fresh start. And uh, he asked the driver to drop him off in a small town called Batstow, New Jersey. Uh, he immediately heads to the general store, and I can believe that there are certain towns in southern in the Pine Barrens in New Jersey that still have those, um, where he uh, inquires about a room to rent, and he immediately gets an earful from the prim old lady shopkeeper about uh, recent sightings of the Jersey Devil in the area. <laughs> and uh, the Hoon asks her for more details, and she, you know, just talks his ear off. He is distracted by two boys. He noted this is uh, shoplifting a comic book nearby, so he excuses himself abruptly, goes out and chases these two boys, whom we later learn are brothers. Their names are Billy and Timmy. The Hoon confronts them about stealing this comic, uh, but the two of them immediately – they recognize him, and they immediately lay into you know, flattering him, kissing his ample ass as much as they can, <laughs> uh, and he <laughs> – and even offering him a place to stay, and so he is kind of forced to forget about uh, you know, bringing them to justice for shoplifting the comic. And uh, they lead him away to the little shack that they occupy with their father on the outskirts of town. Uh, they put uh, the hoon up in an even smaller shack that the boys built themselves as kind of a clubhouse, so they stuff him in there with a – they give him a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and a comic book to read. So they're kind of treating him <laughs> like a, a stray dog they found in town. Um, and the hoon spends the night there. And there's another cutaway scene of uh, – an older woman who's uh, hanging up some laundry to dry at night uh, and is also attacked by this mysterious, monstrous being whom we're left to assume is the Jersey Devil. Uh, the next morning, the boys come to find the Hoon uh, in what's uh, probably the funniest moment in this comic, uh, which I, I should say um, is uh, you kind of get the impression from the cover that this is going to be a humor title. Uh, it, it's not as funny as perhaps it should have been. Um, huh? the, the high concept I give it is kind of like uh, Ben Edlund's The Tick meets Twin Peaks with maybe a little Scooby-Doo <laughs> sprinkle on Wow. combination. Holy mackerel. Yeah. So it's it, it's good at building the atmosphere. It, it actually leans a little bit more to the Twin Peaks than it does to the tick part of its Favorite genetic makeup. Uh, unless we're talking about uh, the, some of the darker, moodier stories that uh, Ben Edlund sometimes told, like the, the Deertown Hovelville stuff starring like Chains. Saw vigilante or the man-eating cow. Um, but anyway, the boys come to find the hoon that morning. They ask him, how'd you sleep? And then we get a, an aerial shot of the hoon with the, the upper half of his body smashed through the wall of this little, tiny little clubhouse. He's sprawled out on the on the ground, and he's saying, could have been better. And that's the biggest humor <laughs> I can really get at this issue. So the boys go into the shack and ask their father for permission to let the hoon stay with them. The father is never seen from behind his newspaper. He is assumes that they've just brought a, a stray dog into the house, and he continues to believe that even after the Hoon speaks. <laughs> a little strange. Um, he asks the boys for a little more background about the Jersey Devil, and then we get a one-page origin story from the boys about uh, what uh, the local folklore says about the Jersey Devil. And uh, it goes to the tune of uh, back in the mid-1700s, the mid-18th century, there was uh, a woman living in the Pine Barrens named Mother Leeds, who had 12 kids, was pregnant with a 13th, and... Uh, Crying out in anger and distress, she said, I'm tired of children. Let this child I bear be a devil. And sure enough, the one, the, the, the baby, when born to her, 
um, is horribly deformed and demonic in appearance. It terrorizes the Leeds family and then spreads its leathern wings and flaps off into the night. And that is the story that the Billy and Timmy tell the Hoon, and he just kind of shakes it off. And he spends the next several days just kind of hanging out, uh, being the homeless adult best friend to these two children. And uh, they're playing baseball in a field, and uh, the Hoon happens to come across uh, a human skeleton with what looks like a couple of uh, monster footprints on either side of it, on the other side of the fence separating the field where they're playing ball from the edge of the woods. Uh, he kind of hustles the boys away from the fence and... Uh, Later on, that night at like three in the morning, he sneaks away to investigate. The boys hear him leaving, get out of bed, and follow him into the dark, creepy woods. And uh, while the hoon is kind of off uh, investigating on his own, the boys are the ones that uh, find uh, the source of the trouble. They come across a group of armed men doing something probably illicit, and... Uh, they, the, the boys decide to run back to town, find the hoon, find somebody to report this, when suddenly they are captured by uh, a large, looming, hairy-horned, and taloned figure looking just like uh, the thing looming over the hoon on the front cover. And it turns out that this is not the actual Jersey Devil, but just a large, muscular henchman uh, in a monster costume. Um, the uh, Erzatz Jersey Devil brings the boy back to uh, the camp of these armed men. Uh, the boys uh, talk tough to the, the boss of this group of men, saying that, they, that the jig is up. They're, they know just what's going on here. They're going to expose them to the townsfolk. And the boss calmly orders that the boys be killed. Um, but then the boys say... You know what? I think you, we're the least of your problems. We got company. And they point over uh, the thug's shoulders. And sure enough, coming uh, through the darkened woods, you know, whiffling through the Tulji wood and burbling as it comes, the actual Jersey Devil appears. And we got this great you know, one full page splash. This is all in black and white, by the way. I realize I haven't mentioned that yet. Uh, which really kind of enhances the mood of the whole story. But yeah, yeah that's, this is this great full-page rendering of what uh, Rob Behoon thinks the, the actual Jersey Devil should look like. looks like a humanoid bipedal cow with uh, large uh, curling ram's horns sprouting from its head, big tusks coming out of its lower jaw, cloven hooves, big bat wings, and a long dragon tail. And it's you know, looking to settle a score, I think, with the people who've been impersonating it and... Uh, Soiling its bad name. And, and that's pretty much all we get in the first issue of The Poon. Um, yeah, it's... Now, the, similar to what uh, Paul was saying earlier about how uh, you know, nostalgia drew him to, to select uh, Amazing Spidey number 11 for, for this, uh, this episode of Back to the Bins, uh, it was nostalgia that drew me to this comic, too. It's, I know it's, it's not very well-known. In fact, it's the precise opposite of well-known. It's extremely obscure, but uh, I rem I, I do have a fond memory of reading this. It was one Friday night in September or October. Uh, my folks and I were heading to Stone Harbor for the weekend. I was riding in the back seat of their minivan. It was dark. So in, in the full moonlight, we're driving through that little neck of the Pine Barrens. I purposely saved this comic to read until we got to that point. And it's just a perfect example of the right reading material at the right time. Just uh, blending the, the, the material, fusing with the reading context the atmosphere of the story blending with the atmosphere in which it's consumed. And, yeah, the medium and message seamlessly merged, and it, it, it created a great, eerie, faintly macabre little reading experience. Just equal parts uh, humor and suspense. And, yeah, yeah, it's... I have to admit that on the... I mentioned earlier that it's not as funny as, uh, as advertised, and also in terms of dialogue and script and uh, plot, it's, it's uh, more than a little bit weak. But the artwork 
it was in stunning black and white. It just more than makes up for it. It, it just perfectly creates this this eerie backwood sense of desolation, you know, creating the idea of this this, this little town in a in a desolate corner of uh, the New Jersey pine forests, where uh, you could imagine a creature like the Jersey Devil stalks at night. Um, so. Uh, if I can jump directly to my uh, to my gradings for this episode for this issue, um, I, I would give it uh, an A for front cover, and an A also for artwork. Uh, story, no better than a C. And overall, I think I'd probably give it a B minus. Murd, um, go ahead, Chris. Who published this title again? Uh, well, uh, Rob Behun self-published it. Uh, okay. His company was called Eweenie Comics. That's E E N I E W E E N I E, all one word. And this is the mid-1990s? Yes, indeed. Yes. Uh, actually, there's a little essay by the author in the back uh, where he mentions that he was a student of the Kubert School. Um, uh, Ross Andrew was uh, a major oh. role model of his artistically. Oh. And he was uh, good friends with uh, Derek Dryman, who was one of the, the creative prime movers in the early seasons of SpongeBob SquarePants. He finished uh, the art and story in late 1994, and it was published in uh, June of 95. And how many issues did it run? Do you know? I don't, but it was definitely more than one. I've seen cover issues I'm, I'm up as far as the, number five. Uh, I'm looking at the My, Com- My Comic Shop page on it. There's six different covers, uh, six hmm. issues that they have the covers from. Oh. And, and I'm, I'm just looking, you know, because it's all I have to look at. But I'm looking at these covers, and I'm thinking that Mr. Baihun, uh he did have some artistic chops, so I'm not surprised to hear you say that he went to the Kubert School. Um I'm a little surprised that this was not enough to get him noticed and maybe get some more work doing, you know, something a little bit more mainstream, unless maybe he didn't strive for that. I don't know. I have, I have no knowledge of his history at all. But I'm looking at the covers, and like I said, it, it looks like he had some, some definite skill here. I, I can't comment to his storytelling, his pacing, you know, if he would fit into the Marvel method and all of that stuff. But as as far as just being able to render an image... It, it looks like he's uh, he's got some real chops. Uh, I, I particularly get a kick out of the cover of issue five, which looks to be a uh, takeoff on the uh, movie poster for Gone with the Wind. Huh. Uh, and and it's, it's got the hoon, but looking, you know, uh, a little bit more buff and, you know, with a little mustache. And he's, he's holding a uh, super heroine in his arms, much like uh, Rhett Butler and uh, Scarlett uh, O'Hara. <laughs> So it's it's kind of you know with flames in the background, mm-hmm. uh, you know just for I mean if I think this is more than a vanity project or at least I'm kind of interpreting it that way. I think this might have been more of a you know kind of a let me get my name out there and and show people what I could do and and like I said I'm a little surprised that that it didn't lead to at least something more. Uh, uh, you know, you would think that you'd find out that he at least got a, a shot at, you know, an annual or something. I, I'm just going to hazard a guess. Maybe he, had, he wasn't able to get it into previews at the time um, or maybe he wasn't able to get it distributed. I mean, I don't know. but It's entirely possible. I'm not sure how, how or where I found a copy of it because it was kind of hard to dig up even in the mid-90s, closer to when it was published. Um, but I, I think you're probably right, Paul. This is – it's more than just a vanity project, but uh, I'm, I'm not sure – I think it's – I would have called it a labor of love, actually. I'm not sure how seriously he wanted to break in to doing comics elsewhere, although judging by what he says about himself in a little essay at the back, I think he was a, a big Marvel fan, and he probably would have made himself fit into the Marvel method if, if he got the opportunity. And it's, it's kind of surprising. Back in the, even- uh, 
back in the late 70s and early 80s when I was misguidedly thinking I had more talent than I did, uh, I, you know, I, I was very quick to run off photocopies of everything that I drew and send it over to Marvel and DC's offices and see if I could land myself some kind of a job. So I would think if you went through the effort of putting together six issues of a book, uh, you know, where you actually had it printed in, you know, at least a, uh, a professional format to some extent, I would think you'd send send copies to these publishers if you were looking to work for them. I mean, it, it only makes sense to me. Well, I don't know. I mean, he's, again, in his own words, he was a little bit uh, hot and cold when it came to comics. Uh, he describes how when he got to the Kubert School, within a year, he suddenly, for reasons he still didn't understand, lost all interest in making comics and instead learned uh, the arts of storyboarding and moved out to L.A. to work in, in you know, the, that, that part of the industry. And That could explain it totally. Yeah, and then <laughs> and he, he may have found that that was more welcoming to his talents, and uh, mm -hmm. you know, I I can only say, you know, I discovered quickly that I just was not nearly as talented as I thought I was. But even if I had been, uh, I think it is a very very difficult door to walk through. Mm -hmm. So I, I would imagine work is much more readily available for somebody in Hollywood than it is in the comics industry because it's such a small number of people who are actually producing, you know viable work well Murd, we know if he produced anything else or is it, is it just those six issues when it comes to his name as far as i know now, well plus there was uh, the uh, the anthology that preceded it funny time features mm. which was also published under the eeny weeny comics aegis but it's, it's Murd, go ahead, go ahead. I, I, I was just gonna say i i welcome uh, obscure little gems like this uh, to the show because especially a show like this where you know Chris and I both picked very mainstream books so to counterbalance that a little bit with something that people had not heard of before I think is is really the best way to go as opposed to just you know here's three books that everybody loves goodbye <laughs> <laughs> Murd outstanding as always you taught me something well, thank you very much. I, I, I thank you and the listeners for their indulgence. And, and no <laughs> one sets atmosphere better because, you know, having been to the Pine Barrens myself, I could imagine like a young Adam Murdo in the back of that minivan, the moonlight coming through the window of the, the van as you read your comic. Outstanding. My, my Pine Barrens experience is limited to the episode of The Sopranos. When oh, I was thinking about that. Too. <laughs> <laughs> He's still, I, I, still out there. <laughs> I would be curious if anybody is listening to this and uh, whether it be on the Back to the Bins feed or uh, as we've done in the past, I anticipate that this will yep. probably be available on the CGS feed. Absolutely. If anybody's no, listening sure. to this and you're familiar with the Hoon, uh, whether it's just a very passing familiarity or if you have a greater familiarity than uh, than even Adam, uh, please let us know. Jo jo you know, get get back to us and let us know because I'd be very very curious to find that out. Absolutely. All right. So keeping moving on now, I'll tell you, Chris, I am used to you coming up with almost a combination of hidden gem in the mainstream. <laughs> you know, you, you, you've come up with some things in the past, like Prez or uh, uh, some, some Shang Chi or Black Panther or uh, what was the other one? Did you did you Secret Defenders? I think you brought one. Also? No, that wasn't me. That was I think that was Murd. Yeah, that oh, seems more okay. like the kind of thing I would do because yeah. I, I really did okay. enjoy that book. 
But, well, in, in, in past episodes, I'm used to, like I said, mainstream hidden gems. This time around, you are hitting on one that I've known for many, many years, and I knew it not because of the original issue, but because it was featured in Son of Origins, which nobody's <laughs> going to see this because we're in an audio medium, but Chris is holding that up to his camera as we speak. And I could reach back and grab my copy if you like. <laughs> yep. Uh yeah, I, I picked this, Paul, because whenever we discuss Daredevil on the show and, like, the history of Daredevil, this story always comes up. Um, and like you, I was given the Son of Origins as a Christmas gift. Um, I mean, it was printed in 75. I, I was given it in, like, the early 80s. I was a little kid. And it was one of my earliest exposures to Daredevil. Um, and I think it was before I'd read any of the Miller stuff, actually. And... The reason why I selected this, because A, there's like you guys, there's that nostalgic aspect. But also, this is one of those Silver Age stories that I think gets to the essence of, of a character and also still translates really well to modern reading sensibilities um, for the most part. And, and finally, the Gene Cullen artwork is so breathtaking in this story um, that that alone de it demands as much reverence as possible. Um so I'll give a brief synopsis because, like Paul said, I'm sure many listeners have read this story or have heard of it. So we're looking at Daredevil issue 47. So that's from volume one of Daredevil, the original run that began the Silver Age. And the title of the story is Brother Take My Hand. And I have a, a full-blown poster of this cover as well. I don't have it up at the moment, but that's how much this story means to me. Um, so it's uh, – Issue 47, Brother Take My Hand, I believe it's 1969 is the year it came out. Uh, uh, it's cover, cover dated December of 68. So it's definitely 1969 that it came out. Um, written by Stan the Man Lee. I'm going by the, the credits here. Gene the Dean Colon Art. Inking by George Klein. Lettering by Artie Simic. So the story opens in South Vietnam. So it's Vietnam War and – a crowd of U.S. soldiers is on, is you know is on R and R, and they're waiting for Daredevil to appear to put on an exhibition for them. And we're introduced right away to an African American soldier named Willie Lincoln who is going blind from wounds uh, suffered in combat. And he's talking about how the doctor says eventually his sight will fully go, and Daredevil appears and he puts on a display of acrobatics, and. Willie loses his sight in the middle of the performance, and he ends up in the hospital, and then Daredevil comes to visit him. Of course, Willie doesn't realize that Daredevil is actually blind, and he reveals that he's he, – and Willie reveals that, well, I can't go back to my civilian life because I was a police officer. I can't do that job anymore, and he returns to the, to the States, and Daredevil says you should look up you know, my friend Matt Murdock, who's a great lawyer, and he goes – Willie goes to uh, – the welfare department, he meets Karen Page, who at this point in the history, Matt and Karen Page are not together. And in fact, Matt is, was ruminating in a thought balloon about how he misses Karen and, and they're, they're separated. And she, as a, as a social worker, refers Willie to Matt for help. We find out that Willie has been uh, framed by some uh, local mobsters, and that's why he's been, he's been kicked. He's been suspended from the force. And, and you've got a great classic Matt Murdock as lawyer sequence where he tricks uh, the – witnesses into revealing uh you know their sinister scheme and then the mob boss uh tries to then have willie killed and this is one of the main reasons i chose this story there's an amazing 
sequence in the dark where the mobsters break into Willie's apartment and Matt first this is Matt Murdock in the darkness takes on all of these hoods and and then he switches into his daredevil costume and he he defeats all of them and uh then then the, then the mobsters think that Willie himself has actually beaten them because they can't see and uh, the story ends with Willie sitting with a seeing eye dog and by the way Gene Cullen was a huge lover of dogs so he he would love drawing dogs in his stories and Willie just thinking about how, you know, maybe life is as bad as I thought it was. And um, I feel like I'm part of the human race again. Murdoch made, made it, never made a big deal about it because he knows Matt is blind, too. When you get down to where it's at, maybe that's what brotherhood is all about. So a very Stanley ending. And that's the issue. So a couple things. Um, the artwork, This I think this is the first Gene Colan story I read. Except for maybe a Tomb of Dracula power record I had, too. So I know and you get a grin from that, Paul. So early Gene Colan. And even as a young kid, I realized I was absorbing art that was on another level in terms of excellence. And I, even then, and even more so now as an adult, I really appreciated how Gene Colan used shadow, hmm. created atmosphere through things like – window blinds and curtains and, and you know the way he's created a situation in a room and the way he portrayed daredevil fighting i was blown away even as a young kid by how he used you know vaulting over furniture and, and flipping and throwing people over shoulder and, and you know the different moves of acrobatics and like when he's doing the exhibition in south vietnam the way he portrays daredevil moving across the stage i mean so thrilling uh, just to, to get that sense of constant kinetic energy. Uh, so there's that. And then, of course, it's classic late 60s Stan Lee. So it's topical, but it's also safe. So <laughs> Stan was always wanted to sell books. So he'll bring in things like the Vietnam War. He'll never take a stand in any of it because he doesn't want to alienate any particular reader. So he should be commended for, for again, referencing Vietnam. He brings in an Afri- – which one of the things that stand that often he would bring in African-American characters and give them prominent roles uh, in these stories, which was no small thing you know, when, when in the Silver Age. And you know, Willie is, is, is a police officer. He's a capable figure. Um, you know, he's, he's brave, but he needs help, which uh, Matt provides. But th- at the core of this – and in fact – there's a scene where, where when Matt is leaving South Vietnam, he's flying home, he's thinking to himself, war, the most brutal, most idiotic, most loathsome manifestation of all that's wrong with mankind. Very Stanley, kind of taking these very philosophical but also kind of safe takes on very controversial issues. So to me, this is a story that really goes to the heart of what made Daredevil such an exciting character from the get-go and also is very much has that wonderful sort of late Silver Age feel of Marvel you know, topical but not not too radical in its positions, and uh, just just stunning artwork. I mean, this is this is the Marvel method in all its glory because you know that Lee just basically told Gene Colan to cut loose, and he does. And uh, it's it's a book I loved when I was you know eight years old, and it's a book I still love at age forty eight. So that's couldn't my pick. Agree with you. Couldn't agree with you more. Uh, I first first became uh, aware of this one again in Son of Origins when I read it there. I, you know, I meant to pull it out and actually see what Stan wrote in the introduction to it just to see if it was uh, particularly meaningful at all, but I, I did not. I've long bowed at the altar of Gene Colan, uh. uh, 
but I, I said, you know, I think uh, Scott and I were discussing him not that long ago. We've discussed a few different uh, artists. And I think I didn't have a true appreciation for him until I got older because his art was almost at a level beyond what I could appreciate as, mm. a, as a young, younger reader. As a younger reader, I wanted more simplistic things, and, and his his artwork is not really simplistic at all. Uh, I, I've said many times I don't think anybody draws characters in motion better no. than Gene Colan. I agree 100%. He was the master at that. There is never – I don't think there's ever an image where it looks like it's just a poster image where somebody's just standing there and, nope. and, and looks <laughs> to be static. They always look like they're moving. And, and his his choreographing of, of fights is maybe the best of any artist that I've ever seen. Uh, and and also, you know, we, we talked about what Ditko did. I, I have to believe that Gene Colan kind of built a little bit on the foundation that Ditko created as far as the moodiness and the shadows and things like that because if you look back if you try you know when, when you try to be a historian with this stuff and you look back to back when he was uh using his non de plume which i'm trying to remember was it like austin something or other uh it was uh, adam, adam austin adam austin yeah uh it, the artwork was much more simplistic and then all of a sudden he just cut loose the, if, if you look at the issues of tales of, tales of suspense when he's doing iron man it, it goes from you know kind of simplistic just house style of the time to Gene Colan as we love him today. It's like in one issue, yep. the the the, uh, the change happens. So it's something it looks to me like he'd been wanting to do for a long time, but was trying to toe a line or something, either to make sure that they didn't recognize that it was him doing it, because the reason he had the, the known diploma was because he was also working for DC at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, or if it's just, you know, hey, they finally saw his talent and said, do it the way you want to do it. I don't know which it was. Uh, just as a side story for Gene Colan, and this is one, you know, that, that just, just gets the awe at the end of it. Uh, I remember listening to it, an interview with Gene Colan on CGS, uh, and I really, really enjoyed it. I mean, this has got to be obviously That's years early ago. In the show's history, away, yep. a while ago. Yep. Uh, but he had said on the show that, you know, he wasn't actively drawing comics anymore, but that he was available, uh, you know, for, for, you know, you could order uh, commissions which, from which, him. Which I, which I did. Which I did not do right away, and he passed away before I got a chance to do it, and I curse myself for that every time because I had the opportunity. He was on there. He was actually soliciting uh, commissions, uh, you know, which would have been just awesome to have something. What did you uh, order from? So I, I got a Howard the Duck, and I actually met him at the first New York Comic Con. The infamous too many people in the room, and they had to shut it down because because they were overcrowded the space. Ah, and yes. be- before we left, he was at a table, and you know I met him. He was very nice, and and he was taking commissions, and I paid him for Howard the Duck, and he mailed it to me. You know maybe a few weeks later, and uh, it's a full full Howard the Duck with a cigar, and he and he's. And he's very uh, dismayed because he's stepping in what lo- appears to be feces. And uh, it's a fantastic shot, and I cherish it. And, Paul, I want to second everything you said. And I- I'm going to posit a theory here that I wouldn't be surprised if because of the-, the Marvel method and because Lee was such a fan of the artist he was hiring that, he- that Colton felt he could cut loose in a way that perhaps he couldn't if he was held captive to a house style, for example, uh, you know, otherwise. But – when I think of Gene Colan, I also there's a page in Tomb of Dracula. I don't remember the issue where 
the the cast like the vampire hunters are all sitting in a living room plotting what they're going to do and they're all just kind of either sitting or standing but it's so dynamic the way they're they're kind of gesturing the furniture like i've always said the way gene cole because again it's the 70s the way he drew turtleneck sweaters <laughs> uh, it sounds silly but you feel how warm those sweaters are like this yeah, there's no, is like a like a texture to it almost that you can feel i I love reading his 70s work because the fashion of the time the buildings i mean i think tomb of dracula is probably one of of the real pinnacles of his career Hmm. um when you talk about shadow and atmospherics that's all that's all that book was in in many ways visually um besides the great story so this again i had i picked this because and I, i picked this very quickly there wasn't a lot of debate with myself because i've always wanted to talk about this a little more detail and it just it's such it's it's my the beginning of my romance with his artwork, even, even as a little kid. And I, I remember after I read this, I'm like, I'd always know, like, OK, I recognize that guy's work. Like I'd see him in other books and I, I'd, I'd want to see more of it. So and then, like you said, Paul, and I agree, as I got older, I started to really appreciate a lot of what he was doing there and, and the nuance of it. But great stuff. Yeah, it's it's it really is. It's just just as an aside, uh, uh, Tomb of Dracula is one of the series that i had some some issues in my run and it's one of the ones that i'm looking to uh you know when, when i go to the stores it's one of the ones i look to to fill in ah. blank spots in my run uh hope, hoping to get the whole thing i probably can never afford to get that uh that first appearance of blade because uh, <laughs> i'm generally cheap and when i, I you know i'm well, always maybe, looking for bargains. maybe you can find a really really beat up reader copy that's yeah. That's probably my best hope of getting yeah. one. Uh, one of the other series that I'm going for, and it just kind of relates to having you guys on the show, is I've been ru- looking to complete my run of uh, Master of Kung Fu. Oh. Uh, mm. And it, I I went for years and years where the only issue in my entire collection was issue number 100. For some reason, I had that, and I never had anything else. And long before, not long before, a few years ago, before they ever announced that they were going to have this movie, uh, I decided, you know what, I want to get this series because I had seen some issues over the time and I, I grew to start appreciating it and I wanted to, to get this. Uh, I went to the store, I went to a store this weekend and I picked up a bunch of issues actually because thankfully, even though the movie's coming out, it still hasn't skyrocketed the price on these issues yet. Uh, and I am down to needing 17 issues to complete that run. Which is not bad, considering I had one, and there's yeah, I'll say. about a hundred and five, hundred and six, something like that, yeah. in the run. So I'm, I'm, I'm getting there. If only I had a Wild Pig Comics to go to, and I could probably <laughs> find some of them. <clears throat> That's yeah, true, Paul. Only. But I'm, I'm retired. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but back to this issue uh, again. I, I. Uh, I like the way in this issue, you know, you mentioned how Stan hits on the topical references on it. And, and I think it's a combination. I think it's Colin's doing the same thing. But in this particular issue, it doesn't feel to me like I'm being beat over the head with it. The example I always give of being beat over the head is uh, the Star Trek episode with uh, Frank Gorshin with the, can't you see he's got black on the right and not on the left or whatever it is. And it's like, you know, I mean, can you can you be more heavy-handed than that and if, if you read some of you know some of the uh like roy thomas's black panthers sons of the serpent issues from the late 60s mm-hmm. it, it they, they're, they're good books and i love reading them but the topical societal message in them just feels like you know it, it is it, it's they're banging you over the head with it 
This one doesn't feel like that for some reason. This one feels just a tad more subtle than that. Uh, you know, I, I, I think the fact that they chose to have a black man uh, in, in the role, you know, that, that was, that's a great way to integrate it without ever making it about being black and white. And you have your message about war and you, you know, you have a lot of stuff in here, but it doesn't ever feel like they're getting preachy to you. Well, I think, I think that was my guess has always been based on all I've read over the years that that was tend to be Stan's approach. Like he was, he was clearly a thoughtful man who was thinking about a lot of these issues, but he was also someone who was trying to sell books. So, I think he was in many cases, and some people will find fault with this, depending on how you look at it. But I think he was trying to find a strike a balance with with things he was actually thinking about and concerned about, with being a company guy selling comic books. And let me, let me actually, Paul, let me read to you the last paragraph of of his intro to this issue because I, I I think you'd be interested in what he said. Speaking of stories, the one that follows, "Brother, Take My Hand," is a yarn of which I'm particularly proud. It involves another blind man, one who also happened to be black. It tells of a man who had almost lost hope. I thought there was no way back for someone like himself. It touches on man's inhumanity to man, one of the biggest problems that which faces us today. I admit it. I was trying to really say something in this story and to say it softly. But read it for yourself. You'll see what I mean. There so, you go. Okay. So I agreed with Stan without even knowing it, which, which makes me feel good. Uh, you know, I guess the only thing about this one that just kind of throws me off a little bit is the uh, – the fact that Daredevil's like on a USO tour. I don't know how that happens. <laughs> well, <laughs> like, he seems he talks about how you know celebrities and, and can do it. You know, a superhero can do it too. So, yeah, no, I, I mean they <laughs> don't they think kind of address it, but yeah, <laughs> like how, how do you, you know how do you say Daredevil come and get this flight and we're going to take you to Vietnam and he's like okay, I just like I, I don't see that happening. Uh, but just the same, it, it's I, I think. You know, this was not – doing it in Vietnam was uncommon, but to say, oh, this is a charity show and Captain America is here to do uh, some stunts for you or whatever, they – I mean, they did that in the comics fairly frequently back then. So I guess this just kind of goes in line with that. And I just – I keep paging through it, and I just love the art. That's really – the story is really good, but the art is what sells oh, this yeah. book by all means. Any <laughs> chance you've seen this one, Adam? Um, no chance at all. I've seen the cover for it. Um, I know Chris mentioned it uh, at some length during one of our spotlight on Daredevil yes, in the uh, Silver Age episodes. Um, uh, yeah, but I do know enough about Gene Colan's artwork to have a kind of a vague picture. You know, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, I apologize, Chris. I, I, I had a I could have given you a good segue for talking about Colan artwork because I was going to say that uh, Rob Bune's art, uh, in terms oh, of how oh. he uh, his awareness of and utilization of light and shadow, wasn't quite on the level of Gene Colan, but it, it was a couple of notches below. So yes, those those the chiaroscuro quality of Colan's art mm. is, is well known and appreciated to me, and I would love to see that uh, fight sequence you were talking about in mostly darkness. Mur, next time we meet, oh. I'll make sure you can see that. We just All reviewed right, a you, book recently, Scott and I, an issue of Ghosts from D.C., and it had three stories in it. And one of them, I would swear to you, it was drawn by Gene Colan. I, I, would, I would bet my house on it, and wow. it was not. And I'm trying to remember now who the artist was because I would love to, to, to give you that information and, and see, you know, let you, see if you ever heard of this guy even because he was an artist I had not heard of. 
uh, and I was I was convinced that it was also a, uh, a, a you know a different name that he was going under at the time, but no such uh, information came to the front when we looked him up. Uh, but he was a guy who who I would definitely seek out more of his work just because it looked so much like Gene Colan. Uh, just, just, you know, really quickly, it was a story about, a, a the, you know, the specter of death, you know, with the, the robe and the scythe and everything. Uh, he came and took a life, but very stupidly dropped his list of who he was supposed to be going to get next. <laughs> so the police officer investigating the, uh, the, the death or whatever, you know, finds this, this thing and he starts taking advantage of it, uh, and death comes to visit him, and basically the guy says, "Okay, I'll I'll give you back your list if you promise me you'll take me off of it, that I will never be uh, <laughs> killed." And then in, in a, uh, I guess I was gonna say Twilight Zone, but more like an Outer Limits type of ending or or Night Gallery type of ending, uh, death takes him off the list, but has him buried in a coffin anyway. So he spends the rest of his eternity alive, but in a Oof. coffin in the ground. Mm. Uh, so, you know, the whole thing about that one we had to get by was the silliness that Death lost his list. Uh, but other than that, other than that, it, the the artwork was just phenomenal, really. And that was what we came back to. Uh, but, you know, that's my very, very long winded way of saying this. This guy reminded us so much of Gene Colan that it was phenomenal. And when I come across the name again, I'll, I'll definitely message please, you guys. Please. And, you know, uh, made a great point before, because when you see Colan work before it's inked, the penciling detail is amazing. Like like the sketch I have of Howard the Duck, it's not like some quick little thing. Like all the colon detail you'd expect, it's there in the pencils. Um, I've never seen I've never seen any Gene Colan art where it looked like he did just some basic figure work and left no. it to the inker to finish. Nope. <laughs> never. Not that I've seen either. Yeah. Great uh, stuff. I, I, I he's he's one of the guys who I am amazed that he was able to pump out work on a regular basis it's, because he it, was so detailed. In these his guys business. were all amazing like that. I mean, the way they worked. But but uh, some of them were able to do, you know, basic layouts. Even Kirby did some basic yeah. layouts over his career and let, you know, let the inker kind of run with right. it. But I don't think Colin ever did that. Not that I've um, seen. Just as another thought on this, I'm gl and the reason I'm glad that you picked this particular book is because uh, I think a lot of people, especially, you know, people who are younger, don't have an appreciation for the fact that the character of Daredevil existed and had good stories before Frank Miller came along. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. I mean, this is more like the swashbuckling era of Daredevil. Um, you know, and, and that, that that's the character is like that really throughout the 1960s. Um, and then as we get into the Bronze Age, you get some more fun, funky, wacky stuff like Moon Dragon and Steve Gerber stories, which are also all really fun. Um, and Daredevil's kind of all over the place in the, in, the, in the Bronze Age. The Black Widow team ups, which are great, and then of course you get to Miller, and then it's a whole another ball game. And then we're getting into crime noir, and, and you know, obviously the, the Daredevil Netflix series, which I loved. I mean, that you know really borrows heavily from the Miller. Oh, absolutely, uh, and, and I, I love the Miller era. I don't want yeah. to uh, downplay it all, but it did start the trend of what else can we do to just beat up this guy. <laughs> there was there was no love of life for Matt Murdock really once Miller yeah, uh, took over. It's a it's a good rings. point because this this period that there there's again like I said there's that more exuberant swashbuckling 
and like a lot of his villains are, are, are like the jester and you know um which is a favorite of Murds and you know all Absolutely. these all these really more fun uh colorful i mean like i think Cobra Mist- man, Still the purple man, man purple man well, the Purple Man was fully realized as a truly terrifying villain later on, but um, especially especially in the Jennifer Jones Netflix oof, series, man. yeah, and and the, and the comic that, that was based on, and uh, but like Cobra, Mister Hyde, and you know, Hate Monger, and not Hate Monger, uh, Mister Fear, excuse me, um, all good stuff. But you know, when they when they were coming out, uh, like again, you know, we get into the era when I just first started buying comics. Uh, when I first started buying Daredevil, it was. Uh, the Black Spectre run that you know we've covered on this show actually in depth, but with the Mandrill and Necra, ah. who have since who've, who have since become almost joke characters. But when I read that, they were like it was you know, I thought they were yep. very imposing at the time. Yep. So I do I do I need to ask if you can give this A's across the board? Oh, without question. <laughs> I, I I am going to concur because I just cannot. I, yet again, I can't find fault to this issue. Uh, the, the pencil work is just absolutely gorgeous. You know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna dif- I'm gonna differentiate from you, and I'm gonna say I'm giving the artwork an A plus. All right. I'm not even, I'm not even going an A. I'm going Fair an enough. A plus. It's just so beautiful. Yep. And and you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna even give the story an A plus. I'm giving this one A plus as well. Because because I just think this is such a, a seminal issue. I really do. And uh, I think it's it's just I'm I am very proud that I have this one in my collection as well. Yeah, and that and that and that that cover though. Woof. Oh. It's not a typical cover by oh. any stretch of the imagination. And in fact, I, th- I think they did the logo differently for this particular issue too, if I remember correctly. It is so. definitely done differently. I don't know if it's the only time that they use this particular font for it, yeah. but it is definitely not one that they used often, if if even ever again. Yeah. Great. Uh, oh. So I, I guess we're going to call it at that point. And we're coming in just under the wire of the time that we thought we Perfect. might finish. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Ian, I'm disappointed Ian wasn't able to join us. But, uh, you know, as I said, he had other uh, important things to take care of. So I can never fault anybody for that. Uh, so I'm going to see when he's available to have him on and he'll cover his book then. And certainly, by all means, if you guys would like to come along with him, you're welcome back again. Uh, just let, I, me, just I, let me know what it is. If I can make it, I will. I, I prefer not to wait. You know, I, I I know you have your own recording schedule to take care of, so I can only impose on you so much. But uh, just the same, whenever I can uh, have the pleasure of your company, I'm happy to. Paul, we're always happy to come on. It's always a good time. I really appreciate mm-hmm. it. Absolutely. And next time I promise I'll choose something a little more accessible. <laughs> Murd, I, I, like Paul said, your choice was great because it was so different. And I learned I'd never even heard of this book. So I, I loved hearing your description of it. Same mm-hmm. here. Same here. I'm, I'm, I'm very happy Oop. with your choice. Oh, did, did well. Ian just jump on with us? It, I sure did, gentlemen. How are you? <laughs> uh, we're, we're doing well, but we were just wrapping up the show. Uh, That's fine. I, I, That's fine. I'll, I'll, just, I'll just jump on to send my regards then. Uh, you know, here's what I was suggesting was that uh, why don't we find out when you're available in the not too distant future mm-hmm. and uh, we'll, you know, we'll try and join up again. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Absolutely fine. I, I kind of figured you guys were wrapping up. I just wanted to start, jump on the same love. Uh, it's good to, good ah, to hear from you. But, uh, so swell. <laughs> I hope absolutely. you had a good, good family uh, get together. And uh, as, yeah, yep. as, I, as, as I was saying, that 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 trumps recording sessions by uh every, you know every time out 
Oh, 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We went to a, went to a place not too far from here that's uh, like a Peruvian-Japanese fusion place that makes uh, sushi out of like plantains and chicharron and what have you. It was, it was, it was stunning. <laughs> Outstanding. Peruvian-Japanese, my goodness. Yeah, I know. Not, not exactly the, uh, the usual, uh, to say the least. It's called not surprising, though, because Peru does have a, a Japanese minority. Mm, mm, good point, actually. Good yeah. point. I would not have known that. Yep. <laughs> no would I. Yep. All right. Well, I, I won't take away from the end of the show. I just, uh, like I said, I just wanted to send my regards. And yeah, Paul, we can meet up uh, sometime in the not too distant future and try to try to schedule something. All right. So I, I will be in touch with all of you guys and uh, whoever is available. That's great. And you know, whoever isn't, I totally understand, and we'll <laughs> we'll move it along from then. But in the meanwhile. Uh, you know, thank you all for, for making the time to be on here tonight. Oh, you bet, Paul. Thank you. And we'll, we'll be sure to get this on our, our show as well so we can get more people hearing it. It'd be great. Mm-hmm. Yep. And thank you, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at bins at twotruefreaks.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week.